exactly the full st- uh, God story of redemption and how he is recreating our, our, uh, our world. And this story is also known as the good news or as the gospel. And we want to discover actually through the whole Bible how God is doing this, what his plan is, what his redemptive plan is in Jesus Christ. And we started in that story in Genesis 1, that's two weeks ago. Uh, to to see how God beautifully designed this world for good and how everything is good, everything he he, he sees that it is good, he declares that it is good. And uh, last week we uh, were thrown back into the reality of the day <laughs> and, uh, uh, and looking at how decreation set in and how uh, there was a human rebellion against God and how there was a supernatural rebellion against God and that led to a downward spiral of sin, of pain, of damage the, of the world that God so beautifully created. But even there, even last week when we looked at that that downward spiral, there were so many moments of, of hope, so many moments that are already looking forward to um, uh, salvation in Jesus Christ. And today we're going to look at how God kind of begins a long, uh, long journey of redemption. Long, and that starts with Abraham. So in this series, a journey throughout the whole Bible, we try to fully understand or more fully understand that God's story of redemption. And we're trying to bring that back because we're taking four months and like 17, 18 messages. Uh, and we're going from Genesis to all the way to Revelation. Um, but we want to bring that gospel story back to a simple diagram every time. And that's this. It's understanding that we were designed for good, then damaged by evil. Now we're restored for better and we are sent out together to heal and to prepare this world for Jesus' return. And what we're doing today is we're going to... So we sometimes we're on a block. So first Sunday was block one and then block two. Now we're on the, the arrow down to, uh, <laughs> to block three. So we're looking forward to that... To the, the life and the ministry and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that's uh, restored for better. That's where we're restored for better. We're starting that next week. But first we have to go an arrow down. And that is the story of the people of God. That's the story of Israel. And that starts with Abraham. So we're on the arrow down uh, today from block two to block three. And before we start looking at the story of Abraham... Um, we first have to consider why we need to take this journey, why we need to go that arrow down, and why we need to go to block three anyway. Because most people around us will feel this sense that there's something wrong with the world, right? I mean, anyone who is alive and has a brain and is somewhat informed (laughs) uh, knows that this world is not a perfect place. Uh, And so everyone will be able to relate to that block too. Like, yeah, this, this world in some ways damaged by evil. Not everything is right. Not everything is good. We, like, there's a, there's a yearning for a better world. Why? Well, we know there, there once was a better world. And so there's a yearning for a, a better world. But then most people will want to jump ahead to block four. To, okay, the world's damaged by evil, but work on it together give it a really good try and we're going to love everyone and we're going to do good and we're going to heal this world together. The Christians are saying, no, we, we can't just jump from 
the world is damaged by evil. Two, let's just heal the world together. Why? Because the very thing that is damaging this world has also damaged us, has also corrupted us. There's something wrong in us as well. We're part of the damage. We are doing our own part in it and we are damaged by it. And the it in this sentence is sin. Sin has damaged this world and sin is also damaging us and we're participating through our sin in the damage of this world. So if we're going to try to make this world a better place, but on our own terms and in our own way, trying to create a kingdom, but then without the king, it's going to end again like Babel's Tower that we saw, uh, that we looked at last week. It's going to end in the same way where the, the human said, let's just kind of not listen to what God said. God said, like spread all over the world. And they said, nope, we're going to build a city and we're going to build a tower and we're going to reach all the way to heaven and we're going to make a name for ourselves. And that's the sort of whole idea of, we're going to do this on our own terms. We're going to do this in our own way and we're going to become great. And God says, nope, that's not how this is going to work. Where we differ from most secular thinking is that we don't have a hope in humanity, but we have a hope for humanity. And that's what we need to point people to. Most people can relate to this world is damaged by evil and can relate to let's let's try to make this world a better place. But then we say, no, but we have to go through Jesus. It, it, ha it, it can only be in his way and it can only be on his terms. And first he has to deal with that what is corrupting our lives he has to deal with that first we have to die with him and we have to be raised to a new life with him so that in his way we can heal this world together luckily god has not left humanity to fix itself and in today's message we're going to see how god kind of sets in motion his plan for redemption and recreation That starts with the story of Abraham. And what really will stand out in this message is that this is where God begins to reveal himself. Where he gets to show who he is and what kind of a God he is. And you have to understand that Abraham lived in a world that was by default or, or by, by definition a, a polytheistic world where they believed there were many gods all over the place all with their own uh, people groups all with their own sort of regions and everyone had a, had a god that they worshipped and um, I really believe that these were not just statues but but very real supernatural beings that are in rebellion against God and were claiming the worship due to Yahweh for themselves but here Abraham gets to discover who this God Almighty is, who this God creator of heaven and earth is, who this Yahweh really is. And we'll look at three scenes from the life of Abraham. It's going to take a while. We're going to look at the call, we're going to look at the covenant, and we're going to look at the test. And in each of these, uh, we'll look at what that scene reveals about God's character and what it reveals about God's plan. So we're starting with the call to Abraham. And we read the passage that... Uh, connects with that when we uh, open this sermon. It's Genesis 12 where God says, go, kind of follow me. It's a, almost an invitation like what Jesus gave to his disciples. Like, come, follow me. Uh, and, and Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, is doing the same thing here with Aram. He says, come, follow me. Like, and I'll give you a land and I'll give you a people. I'll, I'll let a people come from you and I will bless you. 
And so there's all these promises that go along with it. When God calls Abraham, this is really the start of God's long game. You know, <laughs> okay, so relating to people that are watching sitcoms, like when in the sitcom, the guy is not able to get the girl because like, he's in love with the girl, but the girl's not really in love with him. And so at some point in a sitcom or any series or in a movie, the guy will decide, okay, she's not very impressed with me, but I'm going to play the long game. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be there all the time. I'm going to kind of do loving things. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show who I really am. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to just be there all the time and, and play the long game. I'm not going to expect that she falls in love with me in a week, maybe not within a month, but perhaps within a year or perhaps within two years. Okay, this metaphor really gets stuck really quickly. It's not very, it's, it's not very good. But in a way, you see God deciding, okay, I'm going to play the long game with humanity. We're going to go on this very long journey of, of a couple thousand years until we get to Jesus. But I'm going to start with this one man. I'm going to reveal myself to this one man. And from him will come a people that will have a revelation of me, that will live in relationship with me. And from that people will come the Savior. I hope the metaphor helped and not messed your theology up or make you think I'm a heretic. I'm already regretting it somewhat. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. All right. So, the scene of God calling Abraham from his people, follow me and I'll give you, I'll give you a land, I'll give you a people, and I'll give, you, I'll give you a blessing. What does that communicate about God's character? communicates that he is a God who promises and that he is a God who is faithful. Yeah. His invitation uh, is one of promise. Come and follow me and I'll give you a place, a people and a blessing. God is a God who makes promises. Now, you and I, we also make promises. In fact, I make promises all the time. Don't worry, I'll fix it. You don't have to remind me every month. <laughs> or, or I promise tonight we'll have ice cream if you have uh, kids. Or um, I promise I'll do, I'll do better next time. We make promises all the time. But since we are not in control of the future, but only of our actions in it, any promise is never a sure thing. It's more like a strong intention. I, I, I greatly intend for us to be eating ice cream tonight, kids. But if you're going to misbehave all the time, then the ice cream is going to be off. The promise is going to be off. When God makes a promise, though, it's a fact waiting to happen. When God makes a promise, He is so faithful to His promises, it is a fact that is waiting to happen. Understandably, though, Abraham does have a few questions because he's yet to find out how faithful God is. And so he believes the, right away, he believes the land thing. He's like, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go there. And he believes the, the blessing thing. But he has a few questions about the many people will come from you thing, the many descendants, because he and Sarai, they don't have any kids And they're already, uh, how old are they at this point? Like 90 or so. So they've passed the sort of normal age of, so cutoff age of childbearing two times already. And um, yeah, here's a few questions about how that would happen. 
What I find interesting, though, because most of us will know the story of Abraham, it will take a while, and then they, they will eventually get uh, get Isaac, and even after uh, Sarai's death, uh, Abraham will, will have uh, a lot more uh, children. But what I find interesting is that God is... God is already confirming this promise to Abraham before the birth of Isaac. So in a later chapter, you see Abraham asking these questions like, how is this going to happen? And then God says, no, it's, 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 it's a sure thing. It's a fact that is waiting to happen. In fact, I'm going to change your name from Abraham to Abraham. And Abraham means father of many nations. But this is all happening before Sarah is pregnant yet. And so God says, I'm, I'm calling you father of many nations. It is, it is, this is already a fact about you, even though at this point it's still a promise. It's a fact waiting to happen. Actually, actually the grammatical tense that is used there, theologians sometimes call the prophetic perfect tense. It's, it's speaking the future into the present. The promise is so secure that it's treated as a fact that is already realized even though the fulfillment lies in the future you could say that the whole of the christian worldview hangs on god's faithfulness to his promises the whole of our christian worldview hangs on god's faithfulness to his promises at the point that you and i are at in this history of salvation we're, we're past the midpoint See, the starting point is, is Abraham, the midpoint, the turning point, the crucials, the center point is um, the, the Christ event, the, the, the incarnation, the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. It's the center point, the midpoint. And, but we're in between the midpoint and the, and the end point. We're in between the resurrection and the return. There's a solid promise in the Bible that... One day, Jesus will return to make all things new. And our mission in the meantime is to prepare the world for that day. So in a way, our whole lives are sort of set in the direction of this promise that we're treating as a fact waiting to happen. Our whole lives are, are, are set on it. The whole, our whole worldview is one day Jesus is coming back to make all things new. And we are able to treat this as a fact waiting to happen because God has always been faithful to his promises. He has never let one of his promises slide. And what I find so beautiful in the story of Abraham and in the story of Israel is that it's through the messiness of life that God is revealing his faithfulness. Because Abraham believes, but it doesn't mean that like nine months later, uh, there's Isaac. Now it, it takes a, a, a couple of years and it, and it takes a couple of mess ups in between because Abraham wonders like, okay, it's not gonna, it seems like it's not gonna happen through Sarah. So maybe we can make this happen in another way. And so he marries one of the servant girls and then has a child, but that's gonna, it's just creating a whole family mess and everything. And God says, oh, this is not, this is not what I had for you. It's through the messiness of his life that he begins to see how faithful God is to his promises. Right, what else does this reveal? What does it reveal about God's plan? The call to Abram reveals about God's plan that he is up for partnership. God wants to partner. 
the province begins somewhat as a, as a counteract to that downward spiral of sin and judgment and curse that set in in Genesis 3, where the people of Babel had set out to make a name for themselves, God promises to Abram, I will make your name great. Through Abram and the people that would come from him, God wants to show to the rest of the world what happens when you rely in, uh, on him instead of relying on yourself. And this is in our diagram where the arrow is going. It's not going directly to a better world. It's set in the direction of the one through whom there can and will be a better world, and that is Jesus Christ. The election of Abraham and of the people of Israel from among the nation, therefore is an election of purpose, of mission, to be a blessing to all. In fact, missiologists speak of um, Genesis 12 sort of as the first missionary mandate, showing that um, it was always God's intention to partner with his chosen people to redeem the whole world. And so that election, and I know that the word election is, is very theologically loaded, and we're not going into that today, perhaps another time, I don't know. Um, but it's an, it's an election, it's a choosing from among the nations of the earth. It's a choosing, not for elitism, not for exclusivity. It's an election for mission and it's a, an election for purpose. And this was true for Abraham and Israel. And this is still true for you and me today as the, people of, as the renewed people of God today. He has chosen you for a purpose. He has blessed you to be a blessing to others. Right, it's going to move on to another scene in the life of Abraham, and that's the scene where he makes a covenant with God, or better said, where God makes a covenant with him. But before we go there, we have to, again, understand this whole thing in its original context. It's the, it's the year, roughly, 2000 BC. They didn't call it 2000 BC back then. Uh, <laughs> They, they, I don't know what they called it, uh, but it, it, this is around 2000 uh, before Christ. And so in this time, in this ancient world, people were making covenants with each other. Sometimes it will be a covenant between two equals. Uh, so you see this even in the life of Abraham. He makes a covenant with uh, uh, King uh, Abimelech. I don't know how to pronounce this in English. It's a, it's a I don't know, uh, Ab Abimelech, Abimelech. Abimelech, uh, and he's one of the Canaanite kings, and he's somewhat of an equal to, to Abraham. Abraham's a, Abraham's a powerful and wealthy man, and so at some point they decide, let's not be in each other's way, but let's be friends. Let's, it's, it's, it's a bit of a peace treaty, but also a bit of a friendship, like, yeah, we're going um, to support each other, we're going uh, to not be in each other's way, but kind of help each other out. And so they make a, a covenant together. But a, a more common type of covenant in this time was called a suzerain-vassal treaty. And in, this, in a covenant like this, a suzerain, which is the more, the more powerful partner in a, in, a, in a relationship, sets the terms and the conditions for the vessel, the, the less powerful partner <laughs> in the relationship. And the, the more powerful partner sets the terms and the conditions for the well-being of the other. Usually, this is a conquering king laying down the terms and the conditions for the conquered people and how do it stay alive. Uh, you pay tax, 
you don't complain, you don't rebel, and I will let you live. Something like this. The very idea that a God would make a covenant with a human being would have been a shock at this time. This is not something that gods would do. You don't make a, a covenant with a god. But where it becomes even more sort of shocking and unthinkable is that this god initiates the covenant and then does it in a way so the 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 power dynamics of this relationship between Abraham and God is obviously that of a more powerful partner and a less powerful partner. But the way the covenant the terms and the conditions and the way that it's set up is like a covenant between equals. Okay, Genesis 15, we're going to see something of how this covenant is made. Uh, Genesis 15, verse 7. And he said to him, um, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans uh, to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh, God, uh, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And then he said to him, that's God said to Abraham, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Okay, skip, for, uh, skip forward a little bit. Abram falls into a deep sleep and then has this vision. When the sun had uh, gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, represents God, passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land. Okay, what does this reveal about, we're talking about how God is revealing himself to Abraham in his life, in these three scenes. How, what does this reveal about God's character? It reveals his commitment to Abraham and Abraham's descendants. Usually in a covenant between equals, what would happen is that the two partners in the covenant would walk through the sacrificed animals or the cut up animals, the gross scene, I know. Um, and they would walk through together declaring something like, if I break this covenant between the two of us, is if, I, if, if I break it, if I, uh, um, if I become untrustworthy in this relationship and in the covenant that we're making, may happen to me what has happened to these animals that we're now walking through and our shoes are getting all bloody and sticky. This is what would happen. But in this... So, so to think that God would do something like that together with the man and equal terms make a covenant like this is unthinkable. But what happens, it's only God that is passing through the uh, cut-up animals effectively saying, may be done unto me as to these cut-up animals if either one of us breaks this covenant. Abraham never walks through. He is part of the covenant. The covenant is made with him. But the conditions of breaking the covenant do not fall on Abraham or on his descendants. Pete Hughes in the book uh, All Things New says this about it. God makes a pledge that he would rather die than give up his plans to restore the created order and make all things new. God is all in on his relationship with Abraham. He is all in 
on this relationship with his people. He is all in on his relationship with you and me. His goodness, his commitment is unwavering, is unrelenting, it's unfailing. He has a whatever it takes attitude when it comes to the redemption of humanity, even if it would cost him everything. What does it reveal about God's plan? It reveals that his plan is relationship. He wants to do this redemption of humanity through relationship. Relationship. God is out for a relationship because covenants are based on relationship. And in our modern world, we have really lost a sense of what a covenant means. We don't really do covenants anymore. We do contracts. The only place where we would still refer to a covenant is in the covenant of marriage. Marriage, we say, as Christians at least, is a covenant between two human beings with God as a witness. But in our secular world, we've reduced marriage to a contract. We've replaced it or reduced it to a contract. A contract is an agreement between two people where they agree on certain terms and conditions for the sake of mutual benefit. And so the world is full of contracts, and it's fine. You know, if I, for, for example, a working contract, I do this work for you, and you pay me this and this much, and we're both happy for as long as I do my work well, and you keep on paying me. Simple as, a, simple as that. That's a contract. It's certain terms and conditions for the sake of a mutual benefit. Contracts are based on obligation. Contracts are... The, the goal is mutual benefit, and it works for as long as the terms and the conditions are honored. Covenants work very differently, though. Covenants are based in relationship. There's a trust between you and me. And the goal is a deeper intimacy. And a covenant is irrevocably binding. It's permanent. And this is also why in the Christian worldview we see marriage as a covenant, not as a contract. Because only in, the, in this type of safety, in this type of commitment that is for relationship, for intimacy, and that is permanent, can a relationship between a man and a woman really flourish. God making a covenant with Abraham and the people of Israel, and later on in the new covenant with the renewed people of God with you and me, um, they show that he is after relationship and it is after intimacy. It's not a contract for mutual benefit. Why? God doesn't need anything from us. <laughs> God doesn't need anything from us. But it is a covenantal commitment, an unbreakable bond with the purpose of relationship and a deeper intimacy. That was, that's what God is after. Right, moving on to the third scene in the life of Abraham, and that is the test. And this is a story that's sometimes in the children's Bible and sometimes not. And we understand why, because when I read this to my six-year-old, now seven-year-old, I had a bit of an explaining to do. It's a test of, of Abraham. And even as adults, this story may, may freak us out, like, what? What's happening now? Um, but actually... Uh, this reveals something so beautiful about God's character and about God's plan that we, we have to look at this because this is really where 
this all highlights, this revelation of God sort of, sort of highlights. One day, and this is when Isaac is born, the child of the promise, the, the first one of the many descendants of Abraham from who the people of Israel would come. When the child's 12 years old, God calls Abraham again to do something unthinkable. First, uh, uh, chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham! And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, Moriah, Moriah I don't know, uh, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. All right, two things. One, it is a test. First one of this whole story, first sentence, God tested Abraham. So we know, as you read the story the whole time, this is not actually going to happen. This is not, like, Isaac is not going to get killed over this. It, it, it is a test. It is a test. God's intention is never that I, Abraham would actually kill Isaac. It is a test. Okay, second thing. This scene freaks us out because we have had a revelation of God's character as good and faithful. We know who our God is and we know that this is not something that God would do. However, Abraham lived in a time where child sacrifice was quite normal, was not shocking. We know of Molech, who the Bible calls the detestable God of the Ammonites, that would demand child sacrifice. We know of several ancient cultures, including the Mayas in, in Latin and uh, Middle America, that would practice child sacrifice. In Abraham's world, this is not unthinkable. In fact, it's completely normal. But even Abraham knows this is a test. As they are climbing up the mountain, and Isaac, smart little boy that he is, is asking his dad, we're carrying up wood, we're carrying up fire. Like, where's the sacrifice? What are we going to, like, we left all the sheep behind. Like, what are we going to sacrifice up the mountain? And Abraham tells him, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And this is what happens indeed. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. <sighs> he said, <laughs> do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, be, uh, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket of uh, by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt uh, offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it uh, is said to this day, on the mount, uh, mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. The shock to the ancient reader would not have been that a God would demand a child sacrifice. The shock was that God himself called off the sacrifice and provided a different one instead. What does it reveal about God's character? That he is good. God is so good. In Abram's world, there were many gods. Let's call them small g gods. They don't deserve a big g they deserve a small g. But they were 
supernatural beings. Every people group, every region had their own God. And we see this throughout the whole of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in the biblical worldview, these were more than just little statues that they would worship. They are actual created beings that are living in rebellion to God, uh, to God Almighty, stealing worship that is due to Yahweh for themselves. And all these small G-gods are working in the very same way. You bring something to me and I will reward you. You bring your sacrifice, you bring your worship, and the small G-God will give you favor in your war or in your harvest or with your fertility or whatever it is you want. In the book uh, Biblical Critical Theory, if you have nothing to do for a couple months, uh, get this book. It's this big. I'm gonna, it's going to take me a whole year to get through this, but it's super worthwhile. The title alone is worth uh, uh, getting it. But so, uh, Christopher Watkin uh, explains it like this. So these other gods are working in this way. It's an it's a N-shaped relationship. You bring your performance. You bring your worship. You bring in so the currency of some of the gods. You bring your child sacrifice. You send that up and reward will come down. This is how it works. This is how the, the relationship with their god works. But... Yahweh, the God of the Bible, works completely different. Next slide. It is a U-shaped relationship. God provides and we worship. God sends a blessing and we respond. God, <laughs> God works in this way. He, he blesses so that we are a blessing to other people. It's a U-shaped relationship where the initiative is first from God and re the response is ours. Our God is good. He is a blessing God. He is a providing God. He is an empowering God. In our life, our worship, our sacrifice are just responses to his blessings and his initiatives and his empowering and his provision. Not in a way to hopefully earn something from him, hopefully to get something from him or, you know, keep on sacrificing, keep on serving, serving lest he would become angry. No, our God is good. The initiative lies with him. And Abraham discovered in this test once again that Yahweh, the God that had called his name, the God that was, uh, he was living in relationship with, is fundamentally always good. Lastly, what does this reveal about his plan? His plan is he will provide. Abraham gets a glimpse of how God will um, fulfill his plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. That plan that is set in motion with his life, with God's revelation to him. He gets, a, he gets to see a little bit of how God will indeed save the world. Because through the line of Abraham, through the people of Israel, God would provide the ultimate, once and for all, sacrifice to atone for all our guilt, to take away all our shame and to break the power of sin forever. And that is in Jesus Christ. We sang it this morning. Worthy is the Lamb. You know, it's funny, that's a line from Revelation. And we get the first revelation of the lamb that would be slain already in Genesis. So the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is pointing us to, to Jesus Christ. In this way, the calling and the promise to Abraham would come to a fulfillment. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Through Jesus, 
Living in relationship with a good and faithful God would not be limited only to uh, people in the line of Israel alone, but everyone who believes would become a descendant of Abraham and become partners in the world's redemption. Romans 4, Paul says this about it. This is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares in the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Remember? And the, uh, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And through Jesus, God would show his all-in commitment to the covenant that he initiated with his people. God Almighty alone passed through the slaughtered animals, effectively saying, if you break this covenant, and many times the people of Israel would break the covenant, and many times humanity would break this relationship with God. If you break this covenant, let be done to me what is done to these animals. And so we see God's all-in commitment to that covenant in Jesus Christ, the sacrificial lamb that God had provided. And so when John the Baptist is preaching at the Jordan River and he sees Jesus, the Messiah, walking by, he says, Behold, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Through Jesus Christ, God would ultimately show what kind of a God he is. That he is not a God who demands a sacrifice so we can get on his good side. There is no sacrifice that would ever please him. Even our most precious possessions would not be enough. Instead, God himself provided a sacrifice. He is a God who blesses. He is a God who provides. He is a God who provides grace so that we can respond to him with faith and obedience. He is a God who blesses us so that we can be a blessing to the whole world. Amen. Amen.